Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the rise in coronavirus cases has provinces making changes. And Ontario's Premier asking for in-home testing kits. The key to this whole, whole issue, I always go to root cause, is the rapid test at, at home. And I know uh, Health Canada's working very hard. I know the Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister are working very hard uh, to get this approved. But this is a game changer. And just imagine if we could hand these uh, these tests out to everyone. The Green Party selects a new leader this weekend. Elizabeth May has had her stamp on what the Green Party is and what that brand represents for almost two decades. And this is really a chance of, of renewal for the party. And a $10 billion infrastructure plan aimed at creating 60,000 jobs. Through the Canada Infrastructure Bank, this three-year growth plan will invest in everything from clean power, zero emission buses and home retrofits, to broadband and irrigation infrastructure for farmers. This is a win-win. It's Friday, October 2nd. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by HuffPost Canada's Ottawa Bureau Chief and the host of the follow-up podcast, Althea Raj. Althea, good morning. Good morning, Mark. Let's talk about where we stand at the end of another week in the coronavirus crisis. There were a couple of things that stood out yesterday. Ontario is changing guidelines around children. There have been changes in policy in Quebec as well, two of the provinces where there have been increases in coronavirus infections in recent weeks, especially since back to school. People are complaining about perhaps inconsistencies in the messaging coming from governments and public health officials. Meanwhile, Doug Ford, Ontario Premier, is asking for the federal government's approval of in-house testing, tests that people can carry out in their homes. So... Where do you think we stand? There have been a a couple of confusing elements that have arisen in the last couple of days. There have been a lot of inconsistencies, and I think people would be uh, understandable and definitely not to blame uh, for being confused by the provincial government's messaging when it comes to uh, what they should be doing, uh, what is safe and what is not safe, which I think is also the cause of some anxiety. Um, In the spring... If we were, it was all hands on deck. Everybody was doing their part, staying home, uh, you know, safeguarding uh, the elderly, our grandparents, our loved ones, our parents. We were going to the grocery store, you know, one family member at a time. Um, and yet, uh, you know, now we find ourselves. I'm obviously in Ottawa, so here uh, the schools are open, the restaurants are open. I mean, you can't go to the ballet, but pretty much uh, uh, everything else seems to be. Uh, life as usual. Um, But, you know, on Monday, we had 700 cases in Ontario. That's the most we've actually ever had since uh, the pandemic began. And the province is saying uh, we could find ourselves in a situation where there are a thousand cases a day. So I think that people are understandably upset with their provincial leaders, wondering, as you mentioned, uh, uh, school-age children, the testing guidelines on Thursday were changed. So on Thursday, parents were told that if their child has a runny nose, they should keep their child at home for 24 hours and then call their pediatrician and find out whether or not their child needs a COVID test. Because the province now says that you do not need a COVID test to go back to school. At the same time, Ontario is telling parents that of the COVID cases in schools, 17% were discovered because children had a case of the runny nose. We're also told that 20 to up to 45% of COVID cases in children 
uh, are cases where the children are asymptomatic. But hmm. Pravin says you don't need to be tested if you're asymptomatic. Well, are you not just telling us then that we can, you know, possibly kill the grandparents that you told us in the spring we should do everything to prevent? Like, I, I think that there is there is so much inconsistency uh, in the messaging. There, it, it does not make sense. And part of that uh, is for political reasons. I think the public is tired. They do not want to go back into lockdown. I think the politicians want to ensure uh, some parts of the economy uh, keep going. Um, but... Uh, there is definitely going to be, I think, a clash between even, you know, possibly between families, between neighbors, not just a, a partisan clash, but, but, you know, what the best way forward is. And I think at this point, um, we may start actually seeing a blame game happening uh, between even the provinces and the federal government. Hmm. Um, you know, in, in Ontario, again, uh, you know, doctors are, are blaming the province for grossly underestimating the number of tests the reason why people are waiting in line for hours and hours of time uh, with 80,000 backlogs of tests that need to actually go through the uh, the national laboratories to get results back. Um, and I think that, you know, you're trying to see uh, the premier, you mentioned Doug Ford talking about home testing. I think that's something that everybody wants. <laughs> you know, we know that life can't go back to normal, but basically everybody is vaccinated uh, and until then, until everybody uh, can feel like they're not... Um, contributing to spreading COVID-19 if they go outside, if they don't know that they have it. Right. Um, but again, that is the Ontario Premier trying to throw the, you know, hot potato back into the federal government mm. uh, side. Yeah. It, it, is, All right. it is very different, very different than in the spring. Yeah, very different. No question. All right. Let's turn to the Green Party leadership. They're going to decide their new leader on Saturday. Uh, and I think it's an interesting uh, time for the Green Party. I know there are people asking whether their future and their relevance is at stake based on this choice for a replacement for Elizabeth May. There were there were breakthroughs for the Green Party. Uh, there were uh, there was anticipation about maybe uh, a, an even bigger breakthrough. It didn't happen. This leadership race, I don't think, in part because of the coronavirus crisis, maybe other factors as well, has not really garnered as much attention as it might have at a different time. Uh, so what do you think is at stake this weekend? Yeah, unfortunately for the Greens, I do think uh, the coronavirus did impact the the coverage and the local media coverage, especially, that their leadership race might have garnered. I also think that because they have eight candidates, it's very difficult to have uh, an exciting and fair debate with eight people um, on stage. But there are different um, cleavages within this leadership race that have not garnered that much attention. I mean, basically, Elizabeth May has had her stamp on what the Green Party is and what that brand represents for almost two decades. And this is really a chance of, of renewal for the party. Yes, the members of the Green Party decide what the party's policies are. So the leader sets the tone and the objectives, and if the membership vote for that leader, it's a preferential ballot again. Um, there is, I, I think, there will be an understanding that you know the, the party is either moving more to the center, moving more more to the left. And what we have seen in this leadership race is really that um, emerging as a central issue. So you have some candidates like Glenn Murray, probably the best-known candidate, frankly, the former mayor of um, Winnipeg, uh, former provincial uh, cabinet minister in Ontario, liberal cabinet minister, running for the Greens. You have people like Annamie Paul, who um, the other candidates, uh, 
believe has been the the unfair unfairly the, the favorite of Elizabeth May. Ms. May has been uh, fundraising with Annamie Paul, but has said that she's not formally endorsing her. Um, and perhaps people like uh, David Murner, who used to be a liberal and ran for the Greens on uh, Vancouver Island unsuccessfully, though. And then you have people like Miriam Haddad, Dimitri Lascaris. Uh, Mita Kuttner, who are, describe themselves as eco-justice and believe that the party needs to tax left, far left, in order to uh, galvanize not just uh, the young people of the country, but to, uh, to achieve the climate goals that the Greens have. That is really the best way uh, to achieve their goals is to tax really far left. Um, and those two things are... But basically, that is what's on the ballot. And right. if you talk to the leadership candidates, that's the ballot question this weekend. And um, there are some in, you know, really impressive candidates. Courtney Howard is an emergency room physician up north. Um, probably you know, nobody, very few people may have heard of her. But a very interesting person. Um, so there's lots of interesting characters. We just uh, don't yet know who they are. Um, and I will say that there, because there's been a few controversies in the last few weeks, um, you know, I was talking to Miriam Haddad, one of the candidates, who said that she's not sure that she will be able to say that the contest was fair at the end uh, on Saturday evening uh, when the new leader is chosen mm. because she says some of her supporters have not received ballots. Um, she was disqualified last week, then reinstated less than two days later. Um, so there, there is controversy in this race as well as uh, – Real, real interesting swastical uh, points of view at stake, I think, here for the Greens. Okay. Let's wrap up quickly by talking about the announcement made yesterday about the Infrastructure Bank and where some of the money will be invested. Uh, what do what do we need to know about that? Yes, yeah, so this is a $10 billion uh, infrastructure plan that's going to be uh, basically funneled through the Liberals Infrastructure Bank. This is actually not a new announcement. <laughs> it's part of the Liberals' $180 billion infrastructure uh, planned that they talked about in their first mandate. Um, so it's perhaps not um, uh, as new as we would have expected, but it is investing in things that I think people will be interested in and that Liberals think people will be interested in, notably broadband Internet, because it is something that um, people have spoken about, especially people in rural areas whose kids are doing uh, school virtually, um, people who have to use satellite connection uh, where, uh, you know, one person uh, can only be online at a time because the, the signal, the signal uh, or upload speeds are not good enough. Um, so there's lots invested, but it's invested in liberal priorities that they've talked about before. So public transit, climate adaptability, helping farmers um be more environmentally uh, conscious, helping uh, urbanites get to work, although I mean, not that many of us these days are going sure. to physical yeah. work, but uh, <laughs> helping them get to work uh, in a, a way that reduces other carbon footprints. Um, so it is, uh, I, I think what we can read from this is one, the Liberals are still committed to the Infrastructure Bank, even though it has been plagued since the start and now has Michael Sabia leading them. Um, they think that this is going to be the start uh, of a new era for the Infrastructure Bank. Possibly, maybe they'll get one project done. So let's see if they can walk right. into them at the same time. Okay. Um, and the other thing is, it's just the beginning. You know, all the Liberals have done is COVID-19 until Parliament has started now. We had two bills on Thursday, conversion therapy, and then this infrastructure announcement, uh, I'm told there's a lot more to come in this fall session. All right. Thank you for breaking it all down for us, Althea. Have a great weekend. 
Okay, thank you so much, Mark. You too. That's Althea Raj, HuffPost Canada's Ottawa Bureau Chief. Job one remains keeping people safe. And as we do that, we're also going to fight for the livelihoods of every single worker. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. At Policy Options, Ray Orb argues rural Canadians need to be included in pandemic recovery plans. Orb writes, In many rural communities, independent businesses that are the lifeblood of our communities are at risk of shutting down. Industries like agriculture and tourism that support rural economies have suffered losses. Ensuring rural communities rebound and thrive in the wake of COVID-19 is critical for this entire country's economic recovery. In an editorial, the Toronto Star argues a national holiday to mark the legacy of residential schools is not enough. The Star writes, The residential school system is a dark and terrible stain on this country's history, and we should never forget what happened. But how will that be achieved by giving employees a paid day off work? Even if we adopt the hopeful view that it would help keep reconciliation efforts on the front burner, it's still a symbolic approach to an issue that requires so much more than that. In the Globe and Mail, Andrew Coyne argues that while Donald Trump's debate conduct was mortifying, his message was terrifying. Coyne writes, In one chaotic evening, Trump refused to guarantee that he would accept defeat in the election, refused to condemn the white supremacist groups that are increasingly roaming the streets, and refused to call for calm among his supporters on Election Day. That he has said or done each of these things before does not alter the force and shock of seeing him deploy all of them together on national television. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The federal government's rent assistance program for small businesses has expired as the coronavirus pandemic enters its second wave in parts of the country. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more now on what comes next. Mark, the Canada Emergency Commercial Rent Assistance Program was never quite the success that the government had hoped it would be. It offered small businesses the chance to pay only 25% of their commercial rents if they had suffered significant losses due to COVID-19. But there was very little uptake on the program, especially because it depended on landlords applying for it and not tenants. From the beginning, business owners said that was a major obstacle, and in the end, a great number of commercial landlords simply didn't apply for the program. So, the program expired on Thursday, and despite all of its shortcomings, many small businesses are still in need of some sort of rent relief, especially as they face the second wave of the pandemic and possible new closures. Ottawa has promised to renew the program, but so far, there's been no announcement, and small businesses are facing another month's rent. Business owners are also upset that the every indication is that Ottawa will not make that vital change to the program of offering the assistance directly to tenants and not going through landlords. Some observers say it's because it's a joint federal-provincial program and there are indications that some provinces are refusing to make that change. Anyway, Mark, for Canada's beleaguered small and medium-sized business owners, they are watching and waiting with much concern. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will make an announcement and hold a media availability in Ottawa at noon Eastern time. Natural Resources Minister Seamus O'Regan will make an announcement in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. And Immigration Minister Marco Mendocino will make an announcement via video conference. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Friday, October the 2nd. Tune in to Primetime Politics Weekend on CPAC for coverage of all the week's events. Our podcast returns Monday morning. Have a great weekend.